as people prepare for the events that uh, they will be competing in. At least for me, one of the most obvious places is when you watch the downhill skiers, right? I don't know if you all have ever seen that, but if they show the, the picture of them before they get in the starting gate to do their run, you see them off to the side, and what are they doing? They have their eyes closed, right? And they're mentally imagining what that course is going to be like. And, and you can even, they'll even move their body, won't they, as they mentally prepare for what they are about to do. This, this is such an important part of the exercise for them to compete that no one would ever show up on the day of a race and try to figure it out as they go along. It, it just wouldn't happen. They would make costly mistakes and they simply couldn't be competitive. Well, in our passage this morning, these events that we'll talk about will be familiar to us all. The encounter with with Joseph and and Potiphar's wife is something that we're all aware of as a part of this story. But what's important to understand is that Joseph didn't just show up one day and try to figure things out as he went along. Behind the scenes, before this encounter ever took place, God was working in the life of Joseph to develop the character that would prepare him for just this occasion. His character was developed outside this moment so that he could do the right thing in this moment. And so as we examine the events of Joseph's life this morning, I I want you to know that what happens in this very public account was only made possible because of what took place in his private world. What you see happening on the inside is the outcome of the faithful response to the work of God that he was doing on the inside. Keep that in mind. As we look at our passage this morning, turn to Genesis chapter 39, if you're not already there. Genesis chapter 39, and read along with me, beginning in verse 6. It says, So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge, and with him there had he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, with me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. He's put all that he owns in my charge. There's no one greater in this house than I. He has withheld nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or be with her. Verse 7 says that it came about after these events. What events are those? Of course, that looks back to what we talked about last week, those events of of prosperity, of success, of, of blessing in in Potiphar's house and everything that he owned. In other words, things are going well. And in the midst of of this peaceful time comes one of Joseph's greatest trials. I think we would all agree, and many of us from personal experience, that the temptations that occur during times of prosperity 
are often the ones that are most difficult and subtle, especially in compared to those that we face in the midst of adversity. In fact, it's been said that one man can stand in prosperity for every 100 that will fall, or excuse me, will, will stand in adversity. The point being that it's much more difficult to stand in prosperity because adversity has a way of putting us on our knees, doesn't it? It, it has a way of bringing us to God and independence upon Him. But, but prosperity sometimes can lull us to sleep. It, it can make us spiritually lazy. And maybe Potiphar's wife was just shrewd enough to understand this reality. The text tells us that she looked with Joseph with desire. Now, I don't know about you, but that should send shivers down your spine, especially you men. I have this mental image of my, in my mind of this, this hungry lion. You've seen those nature shows, right, where they're crouched in the grass way down low, and slowly they're taking steps to this unknowing prey just waiting for the right time to make their move. Potiphar's wife is in that position. And that look of desire that she is giving Joseph tells me that she was giving him an invitation long before any words ever came out of her mouth. I believe she sent that message with her eyes. I believe that she was seductive in the way she dressed. Everything about her nonverbal communication was screaming with her intent. But here's what you need to understand. Regardless of how overtly seductive Potiphar's wife might have been, this temptation was an encounter that Joseph simply could not have avoided. You see, he was given charge over the entire house. His responsibility included every aspect of that household, including the bedroom chambers where this flirtatious woman would make her move. That's how much Potiphar trusted Joseph. And so somehow Joseph had to be strong enough to endure this lustful temptation that he simply could not avoid. As I was thinking about this man... I, I thought about us. I thought about the reality that we too live in a culture where we face a consistent barrage of provocative invitations towards lustful desires. Many of them are unavoidable. Just as an example, did you know that over 30% of the commercials shown on the average Super Bowl have sexual images attached to them? That's not an accident. <laughs> They know who's watching that game, and they are targeting you men. Not to mention all the billboards, TV shows, movies that are built around this same temptation. It is a constant barrage. Don't get me started on the Internet. <laughs> that one is just downright scary. For example, did you know that over 43% of all Internet activity is directed towards pornographic sites. 43%. That's almost one out of every two sites that are visited in a given day are driven towards sexual images. That's a lot of invitations towards lustful thoughts. Especially when you consider the increasing amount of time 
that people, especially our young people, spend surfing the web just to kill time. It's recreational. But in my mind, that's like dancing in a minefield. It's only a matter of time before somebody gets hurt really bad. So men, listen up. Potiphar's wife is alive and well. And her not-so-subtle invitations are no less prevalent in our culture today. And as we see with Joseph, how you live in your private world will always determine the integrity of your public life. So pay close attention to his example. Watch carefully as he navigates this minefield. And be mindful yourself to follow in his footsteps. And if I could, let me give a word of caution to the women as well. Please be mindful of the invitations you're making, even in the most subtle ways. In particular, please do not let our culture dictate the way you dress. The Bible makes it clear that a a godly woman will be modest and discreet in the clothes that she wears because she understands that although the world may suggest what you need to look like and how you need to dress in, in a certain way, the liberating news of Scripture says that you are most beautiful when you adorn yourself with good works and godly lives. I believe that is absolutely true. You see, there are plenty of Potiphar wives in the world today. Just take a walk down the street. The last thing we need is for the, commission, the Christian community to add to their numbers. Because, as we see, we find out next in our story that these subtle looks eventually turn into explicit requests. As Potiphar's wife unashamedly tells Joseph, lie with me. In hopes that her seductive moves had weakened Joseph's resolve, the lioness makes her move. And I don't want you to miss the attributes of Joseph's refusal. Men, this is the part that we really need to pay close attention to. First of all, his refusal was simple and certain. Joseph didn't entertain the flirtatious conversation, or or he didn't play with the, the fire of her desire. Instead, his response was certain. This will not happen, is what he said. And notice his explanation. He said, Potiphar has given me charge over everything he owns. The only exception to my authority is you. That's because God has ordained only the husband to have authority over his wife. And so to sin with you would mean I would sin against God. Now I want you to capture the heart of what Joseph is saying here. As tempting as that offer might have been from Potiphar's wife, Joseph expresses his undivided trust in the perfection of God's plan. He's simply unwilling to go outside of the boundary of God's original design 
for marriage between one man and one woman. Because if you think about it, one of Satan's most consistent strategies of deception, both here and all throughout Scripture, is to try and convince us that God's plan does not include our best interests. That there's something that, that is better that, that he's withholding from us. We know that. We see it all throughout Scripture. And one of the, the prime examples of what occurs right in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. When Satan approaches Eve and says this, he says, You will not die if you eat this apple. For God knows if you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God is limiting your pleasure. The boundary he set is withholding something good from you. You see, Joseph's ability to trust in God's plan is what gives him strength to endure this temptation. And notice how Potiphar's wife doesn't stop with just one invitation. Verse 10 says that day after day she made the very same request. But here's the key. Joseph was convinced that God's way was best. We need to understand that. What, what allowed him to stand in that time of temptation is he knew what God said. And he believed that way was best. And nothing was going to convince him to step outside of that boundary because he knew God was loving and he wanted his best. So let me ask you, do you share his same conviction? Do you see sin as just a simple mistake or really is it ultimately an offense to God? Are you more satisfied with instant gratification or do you find peace when you trust in God's plan? I think it's good for us to examine our heart to see if there are areas in our life that we compromise simply because we don't trust in God's guidance and instruction. Because remember, we've said this before. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And if God is good and right and true, then we gain strength during temptation because we are convinced that His way is best. And He always, always has our best interest in mind. So that when we deny temptation, we are not denying ourselves a good thing. We are holding on to something so much better. That's what turns our obedience from a burden to a blessing. Because we trust in the Lord. That conviction is what gives us strength to stand during times of temptation. When our enemy wants to convince us to walk away from what God says is ultimately good. And when we trust in Him, we stand our ground right where we are. You see, that conviction is what gives us strength even to stand when no one else is looking. And that's what we see happening. Look at uh, verse 11. Verse 11. It says, Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household were inside. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. 
And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. And when she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came into me to lie with me, and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until her master came home. And none of the men were inside. Well, how did that happen? You know how that happened. Potiphar's wife made that happen. The stakes have been raised because now she's removed any barrier that would create a public awareness. She's inviting Joseph to do something that no one else would ever know about. Now just take a moment. Put yourself in that same situation or just any temptation that you may encounter and ask yourself, would I do it if I knew I wouldn't get caught? Well, that's a gut check, isn't it? Would I do it if I knew I wouldn't get caught? See, that's the situation that Joseph is in. And this is where we see his true colors. And like Joseph, the true quality of our character is most evident when no one else is looking. Would you do it if you knew you wouldn't get caught? Now, What I believe what we see in this example is that Joseph did not wait until this moment to answer that question, right? His choice was premeditated. Joseph knew what his decision would be, and that's why his response was immediate. He didn't stop and think about it. He he didn't delay and kind of weigh his options. The Scripture says what? He ran immediately. In a similar way, we need to understand that if we find ourselves in a place of temptation and we're waiting until that moment to decide what we should do, nine times out of ten, we make the wrong decision. Our victory in temptation is most often a premeditated choice. As we seek to know God's Word and His way, and we're increasingly convinced that His way is always best. You see, the the primary pursuit of my private world and your private world should be to taste and see that the Lord is good. So that when we have this offer to live outside of the umbrella of His protection, to go outside the boundary of His instruction, our response will be equally as clear, I will not go. I will not go. I believe that that's what we see in the life of Joseph. And yet, look at how Potiphar's wife uses it against him. Verse 14 says that she calls the men in the house. (laughs) Of course, the ones that she had previously sent outside, she tells them to come back in. And she speaks to them in such a way as to incite their jealousy. When she tells them that Potiphar brought us in a Hebrew, you need to understand that she's using a racial slur. She is speaking in the most demeaning way about this person to help them understand, and he put that sorry person over you. And notice how she brings them into this argument as the object of Joseph's alleged offense. She says, he made sport of us, present company included. 
Now, I don't know this for sure, so take it in the, for what it's worth category. But as I got to thinking about this, based on this woman's character, something tells me that this wasn't the first advance that she had made to the men slave in that household, right? Remember, her husband is the captain of the bodyguard, which means he's gone most all of the time. That house is full of male servants. And if she was bold enough to do it in the way that she did it with Joseph, I'm thinking that wasn't the first time that she made that move. So maybe what was so tempting to these other men who had now been called in the house was their mutual incrimination. (laughs) In other words, she's saying, Joseph refused an offer that you did not. And unless you stand with me, we're all going down. Now, I don't know that that's true, but whether it's jealousy or guilt or both, Joseph will now pay the price for choosing to do what was right. Look at verse 17 with me. It says, Then when he spoke to him with these words, then she spoke to him with these words, this is now to Potiphar, the Hebrew slave whom you bought us came into me to make sport of us to make sport of me. And it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Now it came about when his master heard these words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, this is what your slave did to me, that his his anger burned. So Joseph's master took him, put him into the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the jail. This woman is good. She's really, really good. Everyone except Joseph is standing around. Potiphar walks into this room of a one-sided jury, and what does she say publicly to her husband? Basically, she says, this is your fault. Your fault. The Hebrew slave which you brought us. Potiphar's wife publicly humiliates her husband in a way that obligates him to a certain decision. I'm convinced that Potiphar was not burning with anger towards Joseph. Because if that was the case, Joseph was a dead man instantly. No questions asked. I believe his anger was toward his wife for putting him in a position where he must choose to essentially sacrifice an innocent man knowing the character of Joseph in order to salvage his pride. And keep the peace among his household. Now doesn't that sound familiar? Think about it. Do you remember the response of Pontius Pilate? When Jesus was put on trial? He too knew that Jesus was innocent. But the religious leaders were adamant. As they called for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Like Potiphar, Pilate was set up. Matthew records Pilate's reaction when he said, And when Pilate saw he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water, washed his hands in front of the multitude, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. I personally see the same frustration with Pilate as I do with Potiphar, keeping in mind that that even though they would like to make you think so, neither of those men were innocent. They were both 
unwilling to stand up for what was right. And because of their selfish desire, they worked instead to salvage their pride and keep the peace among the people. Joseph and Jesus were both innocent men who were punished for doing what was right. I know I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but I want you to think about the the biblical truth embedded inside of this account. And to do that, think back and remember the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples when he said, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And Peter, in his first letter, would go on to echo those same words, and he would write this. He would say, Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time. You see, Jesus was crucified for doing what was right. Joseph was imprisoned for doing what was right. And you and I may suffer a similar consequence when we choose to do what is right. But in the end, in the end, the mighty hand of God will exalt the humble in his proper time. See, God didn't promise us a trouble-free life, but he did promise that he would have the final word. I want you to hold on to that truth and see how it unfolds in verse 21. It says, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him. It gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. And the chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail, so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made to prosper. Remember, we talked last week that the life we live during seasons of peace ultimately determines the peace we have during seasons of suffering. I know for me that this verse begins to play that out. And, and I love the, the word that, that my Bible translates kindness in verse 21. In, in the Hebrew, it's the word hesed. Isn't that a neat word, hesed? That, that word means God's loyal love. See, Joseph is learning that God is equally present in the dungeon as he is in the palace. That his loyal love knows no boundary. And he's always faithful to those who put their trust in him. Now, let that soak in. God's loyal love knows no boundary. And he is always faithful to those who put their trust in him. I think so often we we think of prosperity as something that is dependent upon our circumstances. But that's not what we see in this account, is it? In fact, God's presence is the only constant between the events that happen in the beginning of chapter 39 and the events that we see happening at the end of chapter 39. Everything else changes. Joseph goes from palace to dungeon. He goes from a place of where he's given free reign to a place of imprisonment, to a place of, of privilege, to now a place of punishment. And yet this account tells us that the Lord was with Joseph even in the dungeon and he prospered. What that should tell us is that biblical prosperity 
is not based on worldly comforts. But prosperity, from God's view, is based on God's presence. Worldly prosperity is based on what you have. Biblical prosperity is based on who has you. God's loyal love is our strength when things are going well, and it's our refuge when times are hard. Now, our circumstances may change, but we will always be complete when we are found in Him. Praise God. As Paul tells the Corinthians, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Or as David proclaims in his Psalms, God alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. In him I will not be greatly shaken. May we be blessed by that promise. May we be a people who trust in his loyal love and find refuge in the protection of his perfect plan. Knowing that our most satisfying prosperity is when we walk in His presence. And even when things are tough, we can trust Him. Because in the end, the mighty hand of God will exalt the humble in His proper time. See, God's loyal love knows no boundary. And He is always faithful to those who put their trust in Him. Be strengthened by that. Let me pray. God, thank You for this rich example of the reality of the integrity that we have in our public life based upon our pursuit of knowing You in our private world. Help us to be strengthened by the reminder that we don't make those decisions in moments of temptation. We premeditate them by seeking to understand the counsel of your word and choosing ahead of time that I will stay under that protection. I will not go outside of it. Father, we recognize that in our world today, there are plenty of invitations that barrage us every single day. In many of these, we cannot avoid. Father, may we have eyes that see your goodness, that, that we would be a people that taste and see your goodness, that we would trust in your perfect plan, and that we would not allow the enemy to convince us that there's something better, that you're withholding something from us. That is not true. You are good. You are right. You are holy. And you have given us those things to bring us prosperity because of being able to walk in your presence through the gift of your Spirit who indwells us. And you are a mighty God. And you will exalt the humble in your proper time. You've demonstrated that as we've celebrated at the table this morning. As you died, wrapped in that linen cloth, hidden away into a, a dark and empty tomb only to rise again and be exalted as King of kings and Lord of lords, the first fruit of what we will experience when you raise us up on that day to be seated with you in heaven, praising and glorifying you the way we live for that day, Father. In your grace and mercy, walk humbly, do justly, love mercy. 
We ask this in your most precious and holy name. Amen.